0: Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor.
1: I'm Olivia Cornu.
0: Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we get started, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How has your week, been? How are you doing?
1: Good to see you too, John. My week's been okay, I guess. Nothing too exciting. Went to Jazz Fest last weekend.
0: Yeah, we were texting and you told me you saw Ed Sheeran in a downpour. How was that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we waited it out. There was a pretty decent rainstorm that came through and then the sun came out. It was great. We had a good time singing, dancing in the sun. And then all of a sudden, like the second to last song, it downpours again. But it was well worth it. I had no idea that Ed Sheeran didn't have a band. Did you know that?
0: Did he just do an acoustic set?
1: No, he uses some loop
0: thing. Oh, he's a looper pedal. That's pretty cool.
1: Mm-hmm. He just plays his guitar and he makes, I guess, all the sounds.
0: Yeah. Howie Day is there's a video online of an acoustics at a Howie Day. And he does the same thing where he does like the drum beats on the back of the guitar or something and then loops mm-hmm. it through.
1: Yeah. That's all Ed Sheeran does.
0: Yeah. He's uh, he's pretty talented. He's getting the pants suit off him right now, but he's he's pretty. talented. No, it guy. came
1: through. It came through today, actually.
0: Oh, did it really? Breaking news.
1: Yeah. yeah breaking news. Ed Sheeran is not retiring music, everyone.
0: Yeah, you're right. I just pulled up the article, and Ed Sheeran is not liable, and let's get it on copyright trial. So that's that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Do you, as a musician, do you think that those two songs sound like? Because, like, for someone who doesn't really understand like the alphabet of what music is, they don't sound the same.
0: So the chords are exactly the same. That dun 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 dun. Those chords are the exact same. For I forget the name of the Ed Sheeran song, but then let's get it on. The chords that they are playing on guitar, mm-hmm. exactly the same. The melody is different. And in all fairness, as someone who you know plays music and stuff like that, most pop music is the same four chords. It's G, C, D, and E. Especially in the pop world, it's really hard to prove that someone has like stolen something because the majority of that music is played in these four chords. Maybe you put a capo on right. it or something like that, but it's all very similar.
1: Interesting. Well, as a person who wasn't a huge fan of Ed Sheeran and just saw him live, I was a huge. I'm a huge fan now. Like his music is great. He has a new album coming out. I feel like I'm promoting Ed Sheeran, and I like just heard the man sing for the first time. But so cool. He's like a cool dude. He's had a rough couple years, but anyways, I'm short on time. Nope, I'm not short. You're not short on time. (laughs) This is a full episode. (laughs) (laughs)
0: No, but I will say the last thing I'll say about it is that song sounds similar enough that there's a video online of Ed Sheeran playing that song and then going into Let's Get It On and then going back into that song. So like he knew- Ed Sheeran
1: did it? Yes.
0: He did it as like a medley. So he knew like the chords were there, but that doesn't mean it's like a blatant ripoff. It's just like, oh, I like these chords. You know, it's crazy. It happens all the time. And most of the time it is dropped because it's just a crazy premise, but-
1: yeah. I mean, both of the songs are very popular songs. Who cares? Both people have made a lot of
0: money. No, I definitely agree. Yeah. And I mean, Marvin Gaye is not alive anymore. I know it's the a guy who wrote the song with him. It was his family's estate that was going after him and stuff like that. But uh, anyway, we're almost five minutes into the episode and we've been yeah. talking about Ed Sheeran. Maybe we should talk about some true crimes and that's what everybody's <laughs> listening for.
1: No, not today. Not this episode. Sorry, guys.
0: The true crime is that people don't understand how much of a musical genius Ed Sheeran is. (laughs) That is the true crime. We're going to dive into that this episode.
1: (laughs) Well, how's your week? Because I just went down a whole rabbit hole with uh, Ed Sheeran there. But uh, what you been up to?
0: Um, my week's been good. I've just been working. I'm still getting over this cold. Like my sinuses and stuff are all messed up. My throat is on fire, but we're making it through just ready to get to the weekend. And I've been looking forward to tonight and recording these episodes and getting to hang out. Like I say all the time, it's one of the highlights of my week. So feel really good about the case that I brought this week. I feel like it's pretty in depth. I feel like some people may know about it, maybe some don't. So I thought it'd be cool to bring, but I'm just excited to be here and ready to get into it.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited because I'm pretty certain that I looked this person up before and kind of like read about it and thought, oh, I need to do this at a later time. So I'm excited to like really hear about it and see if it's what I think it is.
0: Yeah. And I actually heard about this case and I'll talk about it a little bit at the end of the episode, but there was a really weird TV show that I watched that talked about this and I don't want to spoil it just yet, mm-hmm. but I'll talk about it towards the end. But also Netflix had a docu-series about killer roommates mm-hmm. that came out. And this is one of the cases that was in there and I had heard about it before. And then the documentary went into a little more detail about it. So I thought it would be fun to really do a deep dive and bring it here, bring it to our listeners for people who may not have heard about it.
1: Yeah. Well, let's jump right in.
0: Awesome. So on November 11th, 1988, police paid a visit to 1426 F Street in Sacramento, California. The home itself was a charming Victorian painted light blue with white trim. Flowers filled the front yard and a miniature windmill spun lightly in the breeze of the day. When officers knocked on the door, they were greeted by a small white haired woman. On her face were thick round glasses. She was the landlady of the home, Dorothea Puente. Now the police were no strangers to the home they had been there roughly a month earlier doing a welfare check on a tenant 51 year old alvaro montoya now montoya was developmentally disabled and an outreach counselor with volunteers of america had helped him to secure residence at this woman's boarding house when the counselor hadn't heard from montoya in weeks she reached out to the police and filed a missing persons report now when the police originally visited the home dorothea puente offered several stories about montoya's whereabouts She told authorities that Montoya had traveled to Mexico shortly before the counselor had filed that missing persons report. Now, during that visit, a tenant staying at the boarding home originally backed up Puente's story. But to the shock of police, that same tenant secretly slipped them a note. And according to that note, Puente was forcing him to lie. And this wasn't the first tip the police had received about Puente. A few months prior, police were told that Dorothea was killing tenants and burying their bodies in her backyard. However, because the tip came from a heroin user, the police didn't find the claim to be credible. But on the November 11th visit, police would learn just how wrong they were. This time, police were there to search the small backyard. Armed with shovels and other excavating tools, police began to dig. And it wasn't very long before they found a human leg bone and a decomposing foot. Dorothea Puente was immediately brought in for questioning, but denied having anything to do with the remains found in the home. But because of her age and the fact that her home had tenants coming in and out, police released her. But the next day, this case would get even darker. So Olivia, before we go any further, I wanted to stop. Just pick your brain. What are you thinking so far as we're diving into this case?
1: Yes, I did look up this case one time and read about it, Um, but I didn't like deep dive into it. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I'll move it and use it for a later time. So I'm really excited that you're doing this one. So I just want to hear the details. But I think Dorothea guilty. That's my first assumption.
0: <laughs> right off the bat, you're like, Dorothea did it?
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about Dorothea Puente. So she was born Dorothea Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California. Her childhood was nothing short of traumatic. At eight years old, her father died of tuberculosis. And the next year, her mother would die in a motorcycle accident only a few days after Christmas. After losing both of her parents, Dorothea was sent to an orphanage. In her teens, she bounced around from foster home to foster home and spent her time again in and out of orphanages. She also suffered sexual abuse during this time. Now, by the age of 16, she had begun engaging in sex work. And eventually, she met and married a World War II veteran. The couple had two children one in 1946 and one in 1947. But Dorothea wasn't really the parenting type. And eventually, one child was given to a family member to care for while the other would be put up for adoption. And in 1948, she and her first husband split up. What followed was a string of failed marriages and criminal activity. Puente served four months in prison for check fraud. She was also caught at a brothel during a raid and was sentenced to another 90 days, even though she said she was just there visiting a friend. Eventually, Dorothea would open an unlicensed boarding house, which she would run throughout the 1970s. She catered to the disabled, the elderly, and the homeless. However, Dorothea was secretly stealing her tenants' government benefit checks. And in 1978, she was caught and sentenced to five years of probation. But that didn't stop Dorothea. It was at this point that she believed it was time to change her image. She would begin to present herself more matronly by picking clothes and using makeup that made her look significantly older. And it was at this point that Dorothea became an in-home caretaker. But Dorothea was still up to her old scamming ways. In fact, she drugged three of her patients and stole their money and valuables. And again, Dorothea was caught. Now, this time she was sent to prison. Now, what's very interesting is shortly before Puente was arrested for drugging her clients, her friend and business partner had moved in with her. This was 61-year-old Ruth Monroe. And just 17 days after moving in, Monroe was dead. The cause of death was determined to be an overdose of codeine and Tylenol. The medical examiner was not able to tell if Ruth's death had been a homicide or a suicide. And when detectives interviewed Dorothea Puente, she claimed that Ruth had been depressed. She shared that Monroe's husband had been terminally ill and that she was spiraling out of control. Because of this, the police eventually ruled Monroe's death a suicide. So I wanted to stop right there again before we go any further. I was kind of mind blown that somebody would move in with someone and then they're dead within 17 days. And I had no idea that you could overdose from Tylenol. That kind of blew my mind a little bit.
1: Oh yeah. People overdose on Tylenol. It's more so as like acute liver failure. So yeah, it's, you can take way too much Tylenol. But anyways, I think it's very suspicious that someone moves in and then all of a sudden now they're dead just like two weeks later.
0: Yeah. And you know what, that actually makes a lot of sense because I know like one of the things about ibuprofen is it can damage your liver and stuff like that. And you have to watch it. So I was thinking more. That's tylenol. Yeah. I, and that's what I'm saying. It makes sense. I was thinking more of overdose in like the traditional sense where like she took a handful and was like, you know what I mean?
1: Raging on Tylenol. No. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Got it. Yeah. But I would imagine high amounts over mm-hmm. like a number of days would definitely cause your liver to be like, I'm done. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. How old is Dorothea at this time?
0: Well, she was born in 1929. And I believe, if I remember correctly, this happened in like 1982. So she would be like 53, maybe, I wanna say. So, okay. you know, early 50s. Now, while Dorothea was behind bars, she had begun a relationship with a pen pal. This man was 77 year old Everson Gilmouth. And through their correspondence, a romance grew. But Dorothea's motives were not of the pure of heart. Everson had money and respect, and these were two things that Dorothea wanted, and she used this relationship to her benefit. In fact, Gilmouth, who was head over heels for Dorothea, was there to pick her up on the day that she was released in a red 1980 pickup truck, and he would even move from Oregon to be with her in California. Now, also at her release was Dorothea's friend, Ricardo Ortica, who owned the boarding house at 1426 F Street. Dorothea arranged to stay at the home for $200 a week, and her relationship with Everson Gilmouth accelerated. In fact, the pair had even begun to make marriage plans. Now, Gilmouth didn't ask much of Dorothea, but more importantly, she was in charge. Everson opened a bank account in both his and Dorothea's name, and shortly after, she offered Ricardo Orderica $600 to rent the entire home. Dorothea Puente was now in control of the entire boarding house. This would set off a chain of events that would lead Dorothea Puente to earn the nickname the Death House Landlady. What do you think of that nickname?
1: Pretty badass. No, I'm totally kidding. Creepy. Is, that's like a that's like a scary thriller movie.
0: It is a pretty intense like serial killer name. And I also yeah. think if you're listening, that's going to give you some foreshadowing of some things that are to come as we go a little bit further. But when they were like, yep, we call her the Death House Landlady. I was like, that's pretty intense. It makes sense. So first, we have to talk about Everson Gilmouth. In November of 1985, Dorothea Puente hired a local handyman to put up wood paneling at the home. In exchange for the work, Dorothea paid the man $800 and a red pickup truck. She told the handyman that the truck belonged to her boyfriend in LA, but he didn't need it anymore. Then, Dorothea asked the handyman to help with another job. She needed a wooden box built, and this box had some very detailed specifications. Number one, it had to be six feet long. It also had to be three feet wide and two feet deep. According to Dorothea, she would use it to hold books and other belongings.
1: That box sounds like it's the perfect size for a casket.
0: Yeah, or some books, letters. some books, you know. Mm -hmm. But yes, that is a very specific set of dimensions. Mm -hmm. Now, the handyman obliged and the box was built. And when he arrived the next day, it had actually been moved to an upstairs room in the home and nailed shut. She asked the handyman to help her move the box to a storage unit. And again, the handyman agreed. But on the way to the storage unit, Dorothea asked the man to pull over near a river. She requested that they throw the box into the water. And according to Dorothea, the box was filled with old letters and junk that should have been thrown out years ago. And again, the handyman agreed. Now on New Year's Day of 1986, and remember, this box was built in November of 1985. So it's a couple months later. Two men were out on the river fishing when they noticed the box halfway submerged in the water. And when they approached, they immediately detected a rancid odor. They called the police who arrived and pulled the box out of the water. And when they pried it open, they found the remains of a man. He was wearing only underwear. The body was wrapped in a white sheet and bound with electrical tape. Also, the remains were mostly decayed. The police had no way to identify the body at the time and it would be listed as a John Doe. Later, it would be determined that these remains were, in fact, Everson Gilmouth. Now, Dorothy Puente would continue to collect his pension. She would even write letters to his family, explaining away Everson's absence by telling them that he was having some serious health issues. And around the same time, Dorothea took in about 40 new tenants. These were people who were mostly addicted to alcohol or other drugs. Now, it's important to remember that she was making a decent living running the house, but Dorothea had a lavish lifestyle and she would spend money quickly so she devised a plan. She would collect the mail before anyone had a chance to notice that it had come. Once she had all the government support checks, she would hand small amounts of money out to the tenants, just enough to get them to the local bar. Then she would call in an anonymous tip and the tenant would be arrested. This would usually result in the tenant being held in jail for 30 days, during which time Dorothea would pocket the remainder of their benefits money. And over several months, the boarding house on F Street became the site of several mysterious disappearances. On August 19th, tenant Betty Palmer never returned from a doctor's appointment. She was 77 years old. Weeks later, Dorothea Puente was discovered cashing in on Betty's social security with a suspicious ID. It had Dorothea's photo, but Betty Palmer's name. In February of the following year, Leona Carpenter was discharged from the hospital and placed in Puente's care. Dorothea made a makeshift bed on the couch as a temporary living space, and two weeks later, the 78-year-old woman went missing and was never heard from again. James Gallup was 62 years old. He was last seen by his doctor in July of 1987. Gallup had recently spent months in the hospital due to a brain tumor, and he told his doctor during the follow-up that he was moving into a boarding house on F Street. 62-year-old Vera Martin moved in the home in October of 1987. Like the others, she was never seen again. And Alvaro Montoya, the gentleman we talked about at the beginning of the case, would move in the following February. So, Olivia, that's a lot of people that just go missing, right? Just to drop off the face of the planet and never be heard from again. What were your thoughts as we were going through?
1: Yeah, you named like six or seven names. And it's like, how are they not putting two and two together just yet? Did the police not recognize that these people that were going missing were all living in the same house? So it's kind of wild that she could get away with this for so long.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing. Like they all have this one connection, you know, and the I don't sweet
1: little old lady.
0: Yeah. And again, you know, she presented as a, a harmless old woman. We know that in this time she's in her fifties, but she's dressing very much like she's 70, right? She's applying makeup to look older. So she's very much presenting herself as this like old woman. Right. But it's just crazy to think that all of these people disappeared who all had this connection in this one place. And I honestly don't know if maybe it's just a little bit of ageism where because they were so old, maybe they didn't have people who were calling and reporting them missing, you know, like somebody in their 20s or 30s would. Right. or, right. you know, because they were older, maybe it just didn't have the same sense of urgency with authorities. But it's definitely strange.
1: For sure. Well, keep going. Let's let's hear what happens.
0: So now we flash forward back to November 1987. Again, after Dorothea Puente was questioned by police, she was allowed to return to the boarding house. Now, the next day on November 12th, police again arrived at the home on F Street. And as the digging in the backyard continued, Dorothea made a request. She told police that she was supposed to meet her nephew for tea at a local restaurant. Dorothea asked detectives if she would be able to leave and join him while they continued the search. And surprisingly, the police agreed. And shortly after Dorothea left, police made yet another shocking discovery. Another body was found buried in the backyard. But now it was too late. Dorothea Puente was in the wind. Police would continue to excavate the backyard and in total seven bodies, including Montoya's, would be found buried in Dorothea Puente's backyard. Post mortem examinations found that the victims had large amounts of flurazepam in their system. Now, flurazepam is a benzodiazepine, like clonazepam or Xanax, so the equivalent of something that you know may be available today. Dorothy Puente had slowly poisoned her tenants by lacing their food with a prescription drug. The victims were later identified as Leona Carpenter, Alvaro Montoya, Betty Palmer, James Gallup, Vera Martin as well as 64-year-old Dorothy Miller and 55-year-old Benjamin Fink. Detectives also discovered that Dorothea had cashed over 60 benefit checks belonging to her deceased tenant. And in my research, I found that she had made over $87,000. And that was $87,000 in 1987, which is the equivalent to $231,159 today.
1: So Dorothea was balling back then.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Now, as the investigation continued, Dorothea was laying low. And after the murders became public, the community was outraged that Dorothea had escaped. Now, at this time, the police were unaware that Dorothea was holding up in a hotel room in downtown Los Angeles. She stayed inside watching TV and only went out for food. But eventually, boredom set in and Dorothea called a cab and headed to a bar in the area. Now, what's funny is that she dressed up and put on makeup. She wanted to feel fancy because she had been locked in this hotel room laying low for so long. And this made her stand out amongst the patrons in the shady bar. Eventually, she struck up a conversation with the man. Dorothea introduced herself as Donna Johansson, and the two talked for hours. And it was then that Dorothea turned on the charm. When she told the man that her heels had been worn down from walking around the town all day, he walked her across the street to a repair shop to have them fixed. Dorothea then steered the conversation to the man's financial situation. And she learned that he was receiving benefits and told him that she could show him how to increase the amount that he was receiving. Now, the man was definitely impressed with her knowledge, but he began to become suspicious that she knew so much about committing fraud. And as the conversation continued, Dorothea talked of getting together for Thanksgiving. She even suggested that the pair move in together.
1: This is all happening in one
0: night? She's at a bar over a couple hours talking to this guy, yeah. Okay. Now, at this point, the man became uncomfortable and he found an excuse to leave. When he returned home, the mysterious woman weighed on his mind. It was then that he turned on the TV to find her face on the news. Now, what is really interesting is instead of calling the police, the man called CBS News. And on that call, he spoke with editor Gene Silver. Now, after sharing his tale about this mysterious woman that he met in a bar, Silver suggested that the man watch the news story on TV to be sure. He also shared a photo of Dorothea with him. And once he made a positive identification, Silver made his move. He gathered a camera crew and he called police and both set out to room 31 at the Royal Viking Hotel. It was at this point that Dorothea answered a knock at the door, only to be blinded by the light of TV cameras. And when detectives demanded identification, the game was over. Within hours, Puente was on a jet chartered by the news outlet and headed back to Sacramento. When talking to police, she admitted that she cast the checks, but she claimed that she never killed anyone. I used to be a good person, she said. Once in Sacramento, Dorothea was arraigned. Now, her defense argued that the case had become a media circus. They claimed it wouldn't be possible for their client to have a fair trial. But in June of 1990, the presiding judge ruled that the trial would go forward, and Dorothea was charged with nine counts of murder. After months of delay, Dorothea's trial would finally begin in February of 1993. Now, the defense argued that Dorothea was a victim of circumstance and that all of the victims had died of natural causes, which before we go any further, I just want to stop right there because that is a hell of a circumstance that you would just have nine people die so close together of natural causes.
1: And no one would report it. Like, okay, if she reported every single one to the police, sure. But the fact that they're just, she knows about it and she's burying them in the backyard. Come on.
0: Yeah. And that was my thought. Like, if you work in a nursing home, making those kind of phone calls to like the police and the coroners and letting them know like someone's passed away is probably a pretty normal thing. What is not normal is someone dying of quote, natural causes. And the landlord burying them in the backyard. Right. Nobody gets a phone call, but they're in the garden.
1: Yeah. And their checks are still getting cashed. Right. Hello.
0: So naturally, the prosecution called out Dorothea's true nature. They argued that she was evil and a cold person who only opened her boarding house to steal the benefits of others. Now, after hearing 153 witnesses and reviewing 3,500 pages of evidence, the jury finally retired to make their decision. Days passed with no word. But on August 2nd, 1993, the jury passed a note to the judge that stated the following. We, the jury, are deadlocked on all nine counts. We would like further instructions. Now, obviously, when that note came in, the defense jumped on the opportunity to have a mistrial declared, but the judge denied it. The advice that the judge provided to the jurors was simple. Go back and try again. And on August 26, the jury delivered that final verdict, but they were only able to come to a decision on three of the charges. Dorothy Puente was found guilty of murder in the first degree of Ben Fink, guilty of murder in the first degree of Dorothy Miller, and guilty in the murder of second degree for Leona Carpenter. Because the jury cannot reach a decision on the other six counts, the judge ruled those as mistrials. And due to this, many of Dorothea Puente's victims did not get justice in the end. On December 11th, 1993, Dorothea Puente was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She died on March 27th, 2011 in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. Now, I don't know if you remember, but this was that interesting side note. At the beginning of the episode, I was telling you that I had first heard about this case on a rather weird television show. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of the show Murder House Flip? No. Yeah, it's on the Roku channel. So if you have a Roku TV, there's like a Roku channel and you mm-hmm. go there, search. I checked it today, it's still there. And there are these little mini episodes where these two designers go to homes where these terrible crimes have happened mm-hmm. and they renovate the home. An older couple actually bought this house to have like their grandkids over and stuff like that. They went in and completely renovated it. The backyard mm-hmm. is now like just a giant gazebo. There's no trace of anything. They put a swing set for the kids in the front it's just crazy because this house that was once this horrible place of horrors is now a safe and loving environment. So, if you have access to the Roku channel, you want to see what the house looks like, you want to see what they've done to it. It's definitely worth checking out. And I do think you can download the Roku app on like Samsung TVs and stuff like that. So,
1: okay.
0: So this episode's getting a lot of plugs for Ed Sheeran and Roku, neither of which sponsored this podcast. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Shout out to both of you. Right. But that's it, Olivia. That's this week's case. Talk to me a little bit about what you're thinking. You know, what are your thoughts? This
1: is wild. Like, I just don't get how she got away with it for so long and how they just like blew her off. Like, okay, whatever. This is just happening and not really putting two and two together.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. The fact that so many people could be murdered there, you know, and again, there's just no connection. It is absolutely insane. And I know I try to steer away from straight documentaries as far as like a source of research for the episodes, just because like anything else, like, you know, the director who's making it or anything like that, it can be skewed right? So there's always a bias or can be a bias. Yeah. Or like we're trying to create a narrative or something like that. Right. So sometimes I'll watch them just to get like an idea of the story, but this one I had seen a long time ago. And I remember very vividly, they were talking about blood and body fluid being on the carpet. And then she would Mm -hmm. just have someone come in and lay new carpet over the old carpet. So it was just like layers of carpet. Carpet. Yeah. Cause people were dying so quickly in that home. It was terrifying.
1: Can you imagine being like the crime scene cleaners that came and like ripped up layers and layers of bloody carpet?
0: I can't imagine being like 77 and being like, oh, I'm going to a boarding house, you know, for a rehab and like helping to get better. And then this is where you land and just trying to imagine like what would be going through my mind. You know, I'm getting sick and right. I've got a feeling that this woman is doing something, you know what I mean? It's just, And then I just end up buried in her backyard like that. That's terrifying to me. Yeah. Well, if we're talking deadbolt test, where does this one fall for you?
1: I'm going to give Dorothea a seven. She's a sick little lady. And um, I'm really sad that the other six people didn't get, you know, the justice that they deserved. But yeah, Dorothea, she, she did some people dirty. And it's just kind of like a miss on like, I don't know, police for not like investigating further. I don't know. I just don't get how this little lady got in- away with this for so long.
0: Yeah, it's also crazy to think that somebody went to the police and was like, this lady is burying people in her backyard. And they're like, you do heroin. We can't take you seriously.
1: Yeah, we can't trust you.
0: And they definitely could have caught her a lot quicker. You know, so it's just crazy. I think for me, when I was going through this, I was really debating because I'm not like a 77-year-old, right? Like, I don't see myself being in a boarding house anytime soon. But this woman was liked by the community. Like, people knew who she was. Like, people referred to her. Yeah, exactly. We're like, yeah, go to this place. You know what I mean? I think it falls a little bit when we talked about the killer nurse, it falls into Mm -hmm. that where it's supposed to be someone that is like taking care of you and someone who's there to help you. And you're in this vulnerable position where you trust this person and then they take advantage of that trust and do something terrible to you. So I think that's where it kind of gets under my skin. So I'm with you. I'm going to put this at a seven. Initially, I wanted to go a lot lower, but the more I thought about it, I was like, man, this is messed up. No,
1: it's it's and she's, she did
0: them dirty yeah i definitely agree and that is where we fall on the deadbolt test for this week's episode olivia and i are coming in double sevens but as always we want to know where does dorothea puente fall on your deadbolt test you can let us know reach out to us on instagram at check the locks pod you can find us on twitter at check the locks and if you're not in our facebook group what are you doing come hang out with us we would love to get to know you olivia this case had me buried neck deep in suspense I don't know about you. I feel tense. I need something light, maybe a palate cleanser. You got a five-star review for us?
1: We're actually going to do something a little bit different this week, John. We got an email from a listener named Kim who told us, I don't do social media, but I'm a major crime junkie. I enjoy both of you and your stories. I don't usually send an email, but I did to John after the clown murder in Wellington because I lived there at the time and I knew all about it. No one would open their doors for flowers for a long time. Keep up the great work. I love Mondays and Wednesdays. So that was from Kim via email.
0: That's so awesome. And Kim, thank you so much for taking time to send in that email. I did get a chance to glance at it before we read it on the show. And I know that she said, Hey, I don't do social media. So this is my review. And if somebody sends us a review on the website or through email, something like that, those mean just as much to us as those Apple podcast ones. So I'm really glad that you took the time to read that one, Olivia. It's just cool to hear what people are thinking about the show. But Kim, definitely reach back out by email. I know you are not a social person, so you're not going to find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod or Twitter at Check the Locks or in our Facebook group because you aren't a social person. You don't do social media, which is totally fine. Drop us another email. Let us know where to send you some goodies and we would absolutely love to do that. Olivia, if somebody would like to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that?
1: Well, I need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll down where you see the all five stars, click them all, leave us a little review, tell us what you think about the podcast, and maybe yours will be read.
0: That is 100% correct. Thank you, Olivia. Yes, head over to Apple Podcasts, make sure you're clicking those five stars and letting us know what you think. We talk about this every single week, but I cannot stress enough how much leaving a review really does help the show. It's going to help us get in front of new listeners, get into other shows, recommendations, and it really does help our audience to grow and I will tell you I did my due diligence my positivity in the world Mm -hmm. yesterday every podcast that I listened to I went in and gave them a five-star review and wrote what I liked about them because I'm like I'm asking people to do it for us all the time I got to make sure I'm spreading the love and doing it for others so
1: that's a great idea I'm gonna have to start doing that
0: yeah and I was just thinking you know it helps us so much and if there's content creators out there that you really like it is a great way to help them as well because again you know if we get put into a recommendation under dateline or something of that nature that really does help people to find us so if you have taken the time to leave us a review thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for doing that and if not just like olivia said head over to apple podcast leave us that review if you need a cheat code go into the show description there is a link that will take you right there so you can leave that review and speaking of supporting Check the Locks, if you would like to financially support the show, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks to get signed up today. Got a lot of great tiers, a lot of really cool benefits. We have exclusive t-shirts, coffee mugs, stickers. Plus, you get ad-free episodes that come out the day before the normal feed. So if you like true crime, you want to hear it a little earlier, you want to hear it without those ads. That's a great way to do it. Also, we just posted our one year anniversary blooper reel. So if you want to hear Olivia and I curse really heavily, mess up a lot and just laugh at each other, that is a great way to do that as well. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash check the locks.
1: Like how you have to bribe our listeners with Olivia cussing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you want to hear Olivia drop some F-bombs, that's the place to do it. If you don't want to hear Olivia drop some F-bombs, then just keep listening to this. Don't go to it. And as always, if you cannot financially support Check the Locks, we definitely understand, right? Just listening to the show, sharing what we do with your friends and family means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, you're hanging out with us every week. You're posting in the Facebook group. You're telling your friends about it. Just know from the bottom of our hearts, we honestly and truly appreciate that more than you could ever know. So thank you so much for doing that. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you are subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to... Check the locks. See you next week. Bye. Bye.